0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rapincheck, your host at National Parks
1: Traveler. It was a busy week, news-wise, in the national park system. We started the week with a story explaining how climate change is changing the behavior of wildfires in the western half of the national park system and how parks are responding to those fires. Almost at the same time, a winter storm was dropping a foot or more of snow on the East Troublesome Fire that was burning across Rocky Mountain National Park, essentially stopping that fire's progress. There also was news from Florida where the staff at Big Cypress National Preserve released a draft backcountry access plan that aims to increase off-road vehicle trails in the preserve by more than 200 miles. And our contributing photographer Rebecca Latson aimed her cameras at the majesty of Redwood National and State Parks. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. Before we get into today's show, I want to pass on news that starting today, November 1st, we're participating in NewsMatch. That's a national matching gift campaign that drives donations to nonprofit news organizations around the country. Listeners like you can play a key role in keeping our news operations strong. From now through December 31st, NewsMatch will match every new monthly donation and double any one-time donation up to $5,000. You can play a big role in enabling Traveler to expand its coverage of national parks and protected areas by donating to our nonprofit organization. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org or mail a check to nationalparkstraveler.org. Post Office Box 980452, Park City, Utah 84098. Okay, here we are, two days away from the 2020 presidential election, and we're joined by Jonathan Jarvis, who not only served eight years as National Park Service Director under the Obama administration, but also was the last Senate-confirmed director of the agency. Christian Brangle, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at the National Parks Conservation Association, also is with us, as is Phil Francis, a veteran of four decades with the National Park Service, who now chairs the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. Welcome back to The Traveler, folks. Yeah,
2: Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for Kirk. having us.
1: Thanks, Kurt. For, for some... Um, this uh, presidential election, um, the campaign started back in 2016 after the last 20, last presidential election, and and so the the first question, in, in light of all the um, interest, is is the outcome of Tuesday's election critical to the National Park Service as an agency and the National Park System as the world's most wonderful collection of parks? Who wants to answer
3: that first? Uh, I'll take a shot at it. Kurt, I, I think it's uh, more critical on this election than any election cycle that I have been old enough to vote, which is over 40 years, um, and have seen many administrations come and go. Uh, this one, uh, I think the future of the agency, uh, our career employees, and our ability to uh, achieve the mission is, is on the ballot frankly. Why is that? Well, we've seen over the last four years a systematic dismantling uh, of the environmental bedrock of the laws, policy, regulations that govern uh, the national parks as well as our public lands uh, and the environment at uh, sort of writ large. Everything from the National Environmental Policy Act to the Endangered Species Act, Uh, to the Wilderness Act, um, all of those are being undermined by this administration, by the political appointees at the Department of Interior and at EPA uh, and other agencies. And in past administrations, frankly, there has been, you know, a shift in priorities. Uh, A Republican administration will come in and sort of focus on bricks and mortar and fixing the, you know, the facilities of parks, but, but not really sort of attack directly the core mission of the agency or the employees, the career employees. Uh, There's been obviously some chips around the edges at times back in the uh, Jim Watt era and Gail Norton era, but nothing like what we've seen in this administration Uh, across the board efforts and some of them quite successful, some of them still in play, some of them in litigation uh, because organizations like NPCA and the coalition have, have fought back, uh, but it's it's really tough in there. And I, I really worry that if the administration, this the Trump administration, gets a second four, uh, that they will uh, completely uh, dismantle the parks and, and public land estate uh, for the nation.
1: Wow, well, that's a pretty strong statement. Phil, What what is your organization here from the field?
2: Not a lot. to be honest with you, is people are afraid to speak to us. Uh, I know that uh, all of us have our own connections and we're able to reach out to a few people, but if we just call a park and say, you know, what about this issue? What about that issue? Uh, People won't really speak to us. Uh, The first time in my career I've ever had that happen. It certainly wasn't true when I first joined the coalition uh, seven years ago. We were able to reach out and and make sure that our understanding of the issues uh, was accurate and that we fully understood the breadth of those issues. But not anymore, even close friends of mine that I've known for decades uh, refused to provide any meaningful information not any longer. The lack of transparency in this administration mm-hmm. I think has been a critical, critical problem. And, and as John mentioned, The impacts to NEPA, the environmental laws, the input from the public, it really has been meaningless in the decision-making process, it seems to me. So, uh, you know, one of the things I hope to see moving forward, and it's going to take a change in administrations, is uh, that the agency become more transparent again. You know, I remember now everything that you ask for, you have to submit a Freedom of Information Act request. Yeah. And and about two months ago, we submitted a a request uh, for information about how many employees have been affected by COVID-19 and and where were these people impacted. Uh, We got a response saying that we were something like number 114 on the list, which means they aren't funding, uh, responding to freedom of information. Act. Because six weeks later, we were still number 114. And now two months later, three months later, we're still 114. We have yet to get a response on a pretty easy question. And I know that they have that information.
1: Why the reticence to, to speak out to, to the coalition? Is it a fear of
2: retribution? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that's uh, been displayed recently by the proposal for a new appointing authority which would allow the administration to dismiss employees for any reason. Uh, this is called Schedule F, and so if you disagree politically with the point of view of the administration, they can just get rid of you. And it's really an ongoing effort, I think, to politicize our agency. And I and I think for you know one of the things I always loved about the National Park Service we were working for the American people. We were working for the parks. And the political, we didn't think too much about the political point of view. I'm sure if you sat in the director's chair, you had to think about the political point of view all the time. But uh, in the parks, not so much. Uh, We dealt with our local representatives, you know, senators and congressmen and so forth. But But uh, nothing like this today. It's very dangerous and people are afraid they'll lose their jobs.
1: That's concerning for sure. Kristen, um, I know the COVID uh, situation has kind of kept you from your normal um, work day up on the hill and whatnot, but what do you hear from from Congress and from the the politicians that you deal with on park issues? Um, Do they want to push back against the Trump administration? Or are they just afraid to push back and they uh, hoping for uh, a change?
4: Well, I think everyone feels like there's that lack of transparency, like Phil is talking about. And they also just feel generally whenever they ask a question, it just doesn't get answered. So for instance, um, as everyone knows, the great American outdoors bill passed and got signed into law in August. And this is something that we've been working on for decades and trying to make sure that we repaired parks and got them the money that they deserved. And, you know, seeing John on the screen right now, you know, I just kind of feel like talking about budget issues and you were always frank with Congress about the needs of the park system. And even when it was outside of your testimony, always expressing how more money was needed for staffing and for repairs. And, With this administration, they have to, under the law, provide a list of deferred maintenance projects and LWCF projects to Congress by November 2nd. No one has seen this list. No one has been really consulted about this list. And David Bernhardt, the interior secretary, appointed a committee of five people who are all political appointees to make those decisions. This is, you know, just not this. This isn't okay. The career staff know what needs to be fixed. The regional directors know what needs to be fixed in the parks. Their advice needs to be taken. There's a database of projects that list the highest priority projects. And what is so upsetting about the difference between even the interior department and the Forest Service is the Forest Service actually had some public sessions where they asked the public about projects that they might want funded under the Great American Outdoors bill. The interior department has done the exact opposite. Not only have they not included the public or Congress or their own career staff, you know, we don't even know what this list is going to look like on Monday when it becomes public. And so, and we talked to every office that we've worked with Republicans and Democrats, no one has been asked about these lists. And this is something mom and apple pie that we all worked on together, you know, over the last few decades, this should be the last thing that gets politicized. And yet here we are, it's the Friday, you know, it's a couple days before the list even goes to Congress and none of us have seen it, or the congressional folks that worked really hard on the bill haven't seen it. And so I don't know, Kurt, it's, you know, to me, there's no, there's no great benefit in being uh, closing your door to people. There's no benefit in not having conversations. We want everyone to love the parks, to feel like we're making progress toward repairing them. And this conversation should be a public conversation. It shouldn't be a private one. And it certainly shouldn't be only governed by political appointees. And I, you know, thinking about even just the previous administration, I mean, how important it is to have stakeholders included in, in these kinds of decisions and engaging local communities on this. This is how you build up the park service for the future is you get people really to feel like they're a part of the process when we're you know when these decisions are being made about money so excluding people is not the way to go and i hope no other administration ever does anything like this ever again because it really doesn't help the park system long term
1: how, how confident are you that a list will be presented on november 2nd
4: well we're hearing it's at omb um, being reviewed right now, the Office of Management and Budget, which is an extension of the White House, and um, and it's been we've been told by both career staff and political staff that the list will will come out next week. So uh, I'm expecting it
1: this week. Politics and and parks and decisions made in parks and whatnot. Um, this past week, um, we saw Big Cypress National Preserve release its draft backcountry access plan. And it seems like just the, the latest effort um, to expand on the plan that uh, John Donahue was able to um, craft in terms of off-road management in the preserve back in 2000, this one would uh, open up more than 200 miles of ORV trails. What, what's going on with Big Cypress? Why, why are we seeing such a push?
4: You no, know, it's been there for a long time, and, you know, we... In 2000, everyone, the stakeholders agreed to the 400 miles of routes through Big Cypress, and then there was the additional discussions per an advisory committee on the secondary routes. The issues are the resources down there, the panthers, and, you know, all of the critters, all of the incredible species that are in Big Cypress. I mean, it's really one of the most amazing ecological places we have in the entire country. It's part of the Everglades ecosystem. And Treating it like an off-road vehicle park is not the way that this place should be treated, and they should be a little bit more selective about the routes that they choose to allow in the park. And so this is going to continue to be an ongoing issue until there's less of a constituency to ride off-road vehicles and swamp buggies through this area. But this is not taking care of the park. There's no way.
3: I think that uh, the Big Cypress uh, plan that just came out is is sort of emblematic of what's going on and what potentially will go on uh, around the system. Uh, there are uh, advocacy organizations like the off-road community that are, you know, working with this administration. They have an open door uh, to uh, Secretary Bernhardt and his team. And that as each individual park <clears throat> goes through a planning process and is, is facing, you know, these kinds of decisions, uh, the politics are gonna swing uh, and are gonna pull and demand uh, that the park superintendent and the regional directors, and now under the new Department of Interior organization where park superintendents actually work for a secretarial <clears throat> appointee, this is what you're gonna see. So I, I, I think this is just a, an example uh, of a trend uh, that will be occurring across the system, particularly if we have a second four. Uh, of a move in the direction of greater you know uh, access, uh, but uh, a kind of access that will have significant impact to the resource.
2: And I know that when this administration first took office, you know the secretary produced a list of initiatives. And what was surprising to me when Secretary Bernhardt took over was that every project had to be sent to his office to go, to be filtered by these secretarial initiatives. And if they didn't match up, they didn't get funded. And so now we're seeing a rush at the end of this administration to complete things that are on that initiatives list. And one of the big things has been access to parks. Now that sounds great. Everybody wants to have access to parks. But what they're leaving out is the protection of resources side. Yeah, it's going to be interesting.
1: Now, this past week, uh, Representative Raul Grijalva, the chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, released a 47-page report that described his view of how the Trump administration has damaged parks and impeded science in the parks, and even used parks for political purposes by keeping them open during the partial government shutdown of 2018-2019, and then pushing to keep them open during the coronavirus pandemic. At the same time, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt circulated an op-ed to news organizations championing President Trump as an environmental president and pointing to passage of the Great American Outdoors Act and uh, successes of the Endangered Species Act. Who made the stronger argument of how the parks and the park service benefited under the Trump administration? So uh, there's been a number of organizations that
3: are tracking the rollbacks of environmental regulations, policies, uh, by the Trump administration. <clears throat> I think history will demonstrate that President Trump is the worst environmental president uh, in modern times, that uh, every aspect of clean air, clean water, you know, the endangered species um, have been um, attacked um, in, in pretty effectively in some ways, some, t- some ways incompetently, but, uh, and that, you know, the, the Park Service does not exist in a vacuum. They are part of a larger protection strategy for conservation in the United States, uh, with including the body of laws we've already mentioned and our public lands. And um, they are affected by all of this. That uh, it's ridiculous to say that, that President Trump has anything but a, a horrible environmental record um, and it will have its impact not just on the national parks, but on on communities, on public health, uh, on our riverways, uh, you know, on our drinking water, uh, on our on our the air that we breathe. And these really should not be political issues. Uh, these should be American issues that that have demanded. And I think what worries me the most about a lot of this is that. Is that you know these laws and policies in our public land estate and our parks were built by generations of work, uh, and we thought they were protected, and I think the vast American, vast majority of the American people also thought they were protected, and uh, now they are, they are being sold to the highest bidder, and we will see the consequences for generations uh, of this. Uh, I'm I'm really worried about it.
4: The long-term effects of some of this, um, and Kurt, we've talked about this before, is how much Secretary Bernhardt has twisted himself into knots to try to get away with certain um, decisions that he's made. So for instance, with the government shutdown, you know, here we have a situation where there's a law on the books that says that you can't have staff just working in the parks. And so effectively, you just have a very, very trimmed down version of the staff. What did we see? Not surprisingly, trash pile up at Joshua Tree, some vandalism, people camping where they shouldn't be. We saw Joshua Trees getting knocked down. We saw all sorts of things. We even saw trash piling up in Washington, D.C. at the mall. And then you have um, Bernhardt who comes in and says, "Let's just use fees." Fees that have already been assigned to projects and programs and that superintendents depend on throughout the course of the year. Oh, let's just use them for, uh, to get more staff on the ground and watch him twist himself into knots to allow that to happen to the detriment of the park long-term. You know, the parks aren't political when Congress decides they're not going to fund, you know, the federal agencies, that means things close down. And, You know, you don't then further politicize them or force staff to do things they know are illegal. Same thing with COVID. What a disaster that has been. And the fact that this administration continues to have the mask policy be voluntary to put staff in harm's way, such direct harm's way. How do you expect these people to come to work and want to work for you? When you are, you don't have their health and safety and their family's health and safety, you know, as the top priority for you as Interior Secretary, and you know, just talking to park superintendents and talking to park staff, like we have been since March, this is just a morale killer of the highest order. And you know, you can speak from your perch and you can say whatever you want and you can support you know certain policies but you you know putting people in harm's way i just it, it it's just amazing to me what has happened and i i remember when the shutdown was happening i just thought just you know things can't get that much worse and then we had the pandemic and the one the top thing that i'm hearing more from park leadership career park leadership is just how terrible and fatigued and morale all of these things are such huge issues right now. And, you know, the park service staff are those faces that you love to see when you're in parks, they help you, they guide you, you know, knowing that these folks feel this way and and feel as though they're not getting the support they need. I think is just terrible. And I think I I just hope no one takes a page out of this book in the future because this is not the right way to manage any, any place, especially our national parks.
2: I want to go back to John's point for just a second and illustrate how these policies are not only affecting parks, but also local communities. In 1994, I arrived in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and I was appalled at the, the lack of sight distance. You can only see for about six miles in the summer when you should be able to see about 120 miles. And while, and we've improved that with the great work of NPCA and others, by about 80 percent, and now the visibility is greatly improved. But the quality of air and water is very important to visitation for the local communities. If you can't see the mountains, it's pretty hard for people to come and say, oh, gosh, I can't wait to see the mountains. I can't wait to get up on Clemens Dome and look down over this incredible landscape. Uh, But you can't do it. Uh, And I'll never forget at a public meeting in Knoxville to our surprise, the American Lung Association showed up at this public hearing. And one of the things they said is, and I know John's worked a lot on on parks being healthy for people, is that uh, respiratory illnesses were up a third uh, because of this pollution. And so we've made this great progress, and what's happened during this past four years is what allowed this improvement to be made is being reversed. And millions of dollars have been invested to make a positive change. And, and are, are we going to waste that investment now and go backwards? It doesn't make good sense. This is Kurt Rebincheck. We've been talking with John Jarvis, former Park Service
1: Director, Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association, and Phil Francis, uh, chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back
0: listener and reader support make national parks traveler possible every day of the year if you enjoy the travelers content please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org western national parks association is a nonprofit education partner of the national park service wnpa supports parks across the west developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at wnpa.org. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at WildTribute.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org washington state is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio it is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org.
1: We're, we're back now, two days before the 2020 presidential election, talking about uh, the National Park Service and the National Park System and, and what's at stake in Tuesday's election. What will we see if the Biden-Harris ticket prevails in the election? How will that affect the park system, the park service? What will change? What needs to be done? Uh, Kristen, you're going to be up on the Hill, I'm sure. Um, what's your perspective?
4: Well, first of all, we uh, I'm also the executive director of the National Parks Action Fund. And if you go to our website, we have a comparison of the um, the Trump-Pence administration and the Obama-Biden administration. So what we tried to do is take issues that there is a direct comparison between the two administrations. And so um, it compares national monuments and the Antiquities Act, the fact that the um, Obama-Biden administration put the Bears Ears uh, National Monument in place, and the Trump-Pence administration shrunk the monument down by 85 percent. Um, and this, for those of you who aren't familiar with Bears Ears, is right next to Canyonlands National Park in southern Utah. We talk about climate change and some of the regulations and plans that were put in place by Obama and Biden and then upended by the Trump administration. And so it's a, it's a, as direct a comparison as you can get on parks and environmental policy um, and the two administrations. So I think I, and I hope what we're going to see, based on what um, we've seen in the various debates, is a real plan on climate change. And one of the things that uh, John Jarvis did uh, while he was director of the Park Service was write a great director's order called DO100. And it sort of looks forward at planning and and management of parks and makes sure that people are looking at the effects of climate change when they're doing um, you know, any planning effort. And so we'd like to see uh, resiliency become part of uh, the management of parks, whether it's a, a cultural site and thinking about how do we keep that lighthouse there near the coastal area, or if it's thinking about adaptation for wildlife and how are these critters going to move around and do we need to expand the boundaries of the national park or get more protection outside of the parks for them? And so so what we're hoping for are some really strong policies in place on climate change and wildlife, and then just uh, basic park management. We want to get back to um, managing um, for the highest protection possible, which the Organic Act guarantees. The park should be on the vanguard of of management in terms of uh, resource protection, and we're just. You know, not seeing that right now, but getting back to being that remarkable agency that really sets the standard for every other agency in the country in terms of of natural and cultural resource management.
1: Phil, does the the coalition have a a playbook of sorts that you've been uh, compiling that uh, you'll take up to the Hill after um, the election if there's a a Biden presidency?
2: Yes, we've actually uh, developed our own transition plan and from the coalition, and we'll be delivering that uh, hopefully right after the election. Um, You know, one of the things that's included in that is to fill the vacancies that exist in the government, in, in the National Park Service. We have so many vacancies. Everybody is acting, exercising the authority of whatever position that they may be holding, and legally so, in our opinion. And so there are vacancies all over the service, at all levels of the service. And I think that uh, people aren't applying for jobs like they once did. And so I hope that we can fill these vacancies and that we can uh, replenish the uh, enormous dedication to the mission of the service, as opposed to uh, following orders from political people. So... Yeah, we, we want to focus on resource management, cultural natural resource management. We want to improve the diversity of the parks. We want adequate funding for the parks. I mean, during record visitation, we've lost about, uh, I think it's 23% of our park ranger positions. Wow. Uh, and it, now, how many businesses would have increased use and reduced the number of employees? That doesn't make sense to me. And so um, for years, we've worked with partners and friends groups and cooperating associations to help fund what we used to call the icing on the cake. Uh, But now uh, these friends groups are funding the cake itself. It's no longer just the icing. And, And it's not possible for these partners who are very dedicated and done a great job to fill the gap. And so we need to focus on operations. The Great American Outdoor Act Act will help, help, but they they, they need need to develop develop capacity capacity so so that that they can implement implement these these projects. projects. I think think that's that's going going to be one one of of the huge challenges moving forward. forward. We need to have an objective evaluation of those projects and not just those projects that meet the secretary's initiatives. So we've got a lot of work to do moving forward. That's for sure. It's gonna be very difficult, very challenging, and it's gonna take a lot of time and money.
1: John, from the director's perspective, is, um, are, are the tools in place or, you know, after the last four years, as Phil was mentioning, the, the drop in resources, both financial and, and staff wise, um, how quickly can things pivot? Well, I think the Park
3: Service is, um, is pretty resilient and, and can recover if both given the opportunity and the support and the leadership uh, to do that. And it needs to be done quickly. Um, I think that there's an opportunity with the Biden administration in the first 100 days through executive orders, uh, through repeal of executive orders passed, uh, put in place by, by President Trump, Uh, secretarial orders that were put in place by Bernhardt and others uh, to really be, uh, to swing the pendulum back uh, uh, quickly and effectively. I I think they've got to move very fast on this and not just let, you know, circumstances overwhelm. And before you know it, you know, you're two or three years into the administration. You know, when I was director, I did have the opportunity to work with Vice President Biden on a number of occasions, Uh, I went with him uh, to the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone uh, with the American Recovery Act projects. And uh, also uh, had his direct assistance in establishing the first state national monument, eliminating the, the trivia question of which state did not have a unit of the national park system. Um, and uh, he gets it, he, he understands parks. He understands the responsibility that, that the, the president has. The national park service has in preserving these places and telling america's story um uh, he he connected immediately with the ranger staff uh in the parks uh, in a very personal way uh and and loved being out in those places and i think we'll see that reflected uh i think we need a career director uh back uh in the park service um uh and uh you know that process it took me six months to get confirmed. So I would hope they would bring in somebody from the field uh, to serve in an acting role, clean out all the the political hacks that are, that have burrowed in or, or still hanging around and, uh, you know, get back to business uh, of a strong budget request for operations, uh, a support network for the employees uh, in their health and safety, a reestablishment of DO100, a uh, sort of hand out to our scientific community that yes, science can be used in decision-making, that we do accept the impacts of climate change and we need to be adapting uh, to that. And a reestablishment relationship with our friends organizations. As as Phil indicated, uh, they become, uh, not only are we asking them to cover basic operations, the relationship between the partnerships is really bad. Uh, They have really treated them terribly and disrespectful uh relationships with our friends organizations and our foundations all of that's got to be rebuilt and rebuilt with the american people uh that there's trust uh, with you know what we've seen with the u.s park police uh and their behavior uh there's just a whole range of things that need to be reinstated and i believe that with the right team in washington the right kind of leadership and support uh, that we can pull that off uh, relatively quickly
1: John, you, you mentioned the resiliency of the, the rank and file and um, the longtime um, superintendent corps out there. Phil, earlier you had, you had mentioned the, the reticence of uh, park staff to, to speak out and, and talk about um, what concerns them. If we see another four years of the, the Trump Pence ticket, how will that impact the National Park Service?
2: Well, I think you're going to see a, a huge drain in institutional memory because I think a lot of people retire, and I think it is going to be more difficult to fill the vacant positions with people who are who come in dedicated to the mission and purpose of the agency. I mean, that's why we love the Park Service so much. The former employees and current employees. That's why people continue to try to help, but. Uh, you know and and the lack of confidence uh, in the leadership uh, will continue to grow. Um, you know when people are working in fear, they're not going to take many chances. You know, they're not going to experiment with new ways of doing business. They're not going to reach out and develop uh, new ideas because they're being told what to do. and if they they veer from that path, they know they're gone. And especially if Schedule F comes into place, where there's nothing but political hacks populating the agency, it's going to be a disaster.
3: Can, if I can just add something, I think that Bernhardt's yeah. removal of Dan Wink at, at Yellowstone was, was done with intent to send a message that I can take down anybody I damn well please, including yeah. the superintendent of Yellowstone. And and you know what that message sends to the field is maybe I don't want to be in that kind of job. You know, maybe I don't want to be that vulnerable uh, and can just get reassigned at will. And of course, the senior executive service, which is you know some twenty-five employees of the Park Service, that's one thing. You kind of know when you get in that that you have that vulnerability. But as Phil indicates, that this new executive order spreads that at will designation into potentially hundreds, if not thousands of employees uh, that could be moved at will. And so Phil's spot on that, you know, if you're rising up in the Park Service, and we've got some absolutely wonderful young people coming up in the service, yeah. highly diverse and men and women, and they're looking up at this as a career and they're saying, oh, oh, man, you know, this, this is what could happen to me they may rethink their career path and that's that we lose we all lose as a result of that
1: kristen i bet mpca has an interesting perspective on that i know you've got staff across the country that are constantly in touch with uh park personnel what, what are you guys hearing
4: well to just to add to the pile on um the diversity trainings um that were attacked by the executive order and then OMB went back and told every agency to um, look into their current trainings and if they talk about racial diversity and a number of issues that they have to revise the trainings well the Park Service staff gave us the list of all the trainings that they have been put on that have been put on hold and they include everything from sexual harassment to tribal consultation so this means, That right now, if you're an employee at the Park Service and you make a sexual harassment claim or uh, an equal uh, employment claim, there's nothing for you. There's no recourse. There's no promise that the person who did that to you has to go to training. And I spoke with a couple of regional directors who said, we don't want to get in trouble with the White House, so we're just not doing anything. I mean, how, do you, how are you going to recruit new and diverse young people to come work at the Park Service if they're not protected, if their safety is not protected? And so this is just chilling, everything that the Park Service stands for, you know, really great career opportunities, working on things you love, being an expert on history or natural resources. If that's your heart and soul and that's what you want to do as a career and you're gay, knowing that you can, you know, potentially be put in a compromised situation and that that situation can't be handled properly. I mean, this is just, you know, part of the sort of morale killing and putting people's safety at risk that we've seen in the last few years. And it's, it's so disheartening we want the park service to be on the top of the list of favorite places to work, not toward the bottom. And right now they're toward the bottom. And so that's so disheartening to see uh, when we know what a great institution this is. And so, um, you know, we we remain concerned about every single one of these policies and just like Phil was pointing out, they keep coming out, (laughs) you know, I mean, they don't stop. They just keep coming out with more and more discriminatory policies. It's just totally disheartening.
2: The employees don't have recourse anymore, none. The merit system protection board is not fully populated, so there's if you get if an employee is wronged in their opinion, they have no recourse. There is no merit system protection board avenue for them anymore. That combined with this new schedule F, I mean, gosh, they don't like the way you dress or look or your political leanings. You're gone.
1: Well, I guess um, the, the annual Best Places to Work in the Federal Government Survey will be coming out uh, any day now, I think, yeah, early November, and it'll be interesting to see how the, the Park Service fares. I know it's, it's been uh, a struggle in, in recent years, and um, I think that'll be a gauge of uh, how the workforce feels out there. Well, I appreciate you for joining us today. Um, it's going to be an interesting election, and um, hopefully it won't take too long for the, the results to be made clear one way or the other.
4: Yeah, and I just hope people really think about how much they love the parks, what the ideal management and the the way that we think about parks. What is your ideal scenario for parks? You want parks to be with the, you know have the cleanest air, the cleanest water, the best protected wildlife. Keep that image in your head and and set that as your expectation. That's what we all work towards um, every day. Is Trying to meet the, that ideal for the public, and we shouldn't have to relax that expectation. And I think people should feel good about the Park Service and and where it's headed in the future. And the Park Service will get through this the tough times. But you know, these these are great places. We love these places. I want to end this on the positive note, Kurt. That you know, you got to really think about the future and what we can do. You know, and that. Like John was saying, you know, the Park Service staff hopefully will be resilient and be able to get back into better protection management mode. Um, but we love these places, there's, there's hope for them.
3: Yeah, I would add to that the COVID 19 pandemic has demonstrated that the American people want to reconnect with nature. Uh, we've seen an uptick in visitation. Uh, not just to the national parks, but to uh, outdoor spaces across the country. Uh, It has also shown us that there is a clear disparity in the availability of the outdoors uh, and access to nature across particularly low-income communities of color, uh, which often do not have parks and open space. But for me, that's a good sign, and that's an opportunity for us uh, to really connect with a new generation and give them an opportunity to experience these extraordinary places, not only nature near home, but, but the great national parks as well. And so I think that this may be uh, a renewal of the environmental movement, which is needed, and a restart with a new generation that, that sees value, sees their story being told within these places. Uh, that is something that we worked on with NPCA and the coalition to add new areas that are more representative of the contributions of women and minorities across our country, places like Harriet Tubman and Pullman and Birmingham. Uh, and I think a lot of those areas have sort of gone into uh, into silence uh, for a while. Um, we were trying to launch some new studies, like the Black Panther study. All of that got stopped uh, by this administration. So I think. There are some real exciting opportunities uh, before us uh, if we can uh, get a little change here and, and some support.
1: Well, John, that's a that's a topic for a whole nother show. I mean, not only do we need more uh, park lands for for people to exist and enjoy the outdoors and and rejuvenate their souls, as it were, but we also need more more um, protected lands for habitat. And um, you know, South Florida is a perfect example of what's going on with the the Florida Panther and the development plans that we're seeing come up around uh, not just Big Cypress, but the uh, the Florida Panther Reserve down there, refuge down there. And you can just look across the country at at all the areas where we need to improve those linkages to um, provide for genetic flow between species. And, um, yeah, that's a that's a whole nother topic that we could spend a couple hours talking about.
3: We should talk about it. I mean, uh, Governor California announced uh, the commitment to the 30 by 30 uh, Convention of Biodiversity Goals here in the state and working closely with his team and uh, real opportunity to. uh, to achieve some great conservation, a large landscape connectivity and the like uh, as well, and uh, and to rejoin the world community in conservation, which we have completely abandoned over the last four years.
1: Well, I'm looking at my calendar and I, I think we should get back together uh, on December 6th to talk about the outcome of the election and, and where things will move. You think it's going to be decided by then? <laughs> <laughs>
4: It better be. You're I optimist. can't do this anymore. <laughs> well, Thanks that's up to date. We'll we'll take you up on it, Kurt.
1: All right, all right. I'll send the the Zoom uh, invitation out after we get off the the show today. Again, John Jarvis, former director of the National Park Service, Phil Francis, chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brengo of the National Parks Conservation Association. Thanks to you all for sharing your thoughts and uh, expectations and, and hopes. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for all. Thanks, Kristen. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be looking at the value that National Park System lands around Chesapeake Bay provide for the region's bald eagles. And it's a little surprising. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck.
0: and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.